Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... We are evolutionarily designed to overweight what's happened to us most recently. You know, when do people buy earthquake insurance? After there's an earthquake. That's not logical. William Bernstein on this very strange moment in the economy and financial markets. Hey everybody, Cardiff here. These are very confusing times for the economy and for financial markets, and they're confusing times for the relationship between the economy and financial markets. Or at least I'm confused. Start with the economy. It's doing pretty well right now. The labor market is still creating hundreds of thousands of jobs each month. Unemployment is low. Inflation has been coming down by a lot over the past year, which is great. And economic growth has been stronger than so many economists and others had forecast heading into the year. But that's just how the economy is doing right now. What about how it's going to be doing in six months, a year, two years? Forecasting is always hard. It may well be impossible. But economists sometimes follow things called leading indicators that are supposed to give a sense of where the economy's headed. And some of those indicators are flashing red, which suggests that we might be headed for a recession within the next year. But people have been saying that for a while, so I don't know. Meanwhile, look at the stock market, the U.S. stock market. It collapsed last year, but it's come roaring back this year. And that despite the Federal Reserve continuing to jack up interest rates, which you would expect would have a negative effect. Is the stock market now overpriced, too expensive? Is it underpriced? A good time to get in. And what happens if we do go into a recession? What about bonds? What about real estate, the housing market with mortgage rates of more than 6%? What about commodities? What happened to crypto and all those meme stocks? Returning to the show to discuss all this and more is William Bernstein goes by Bill. Bill is the author of no fewer than three of my favorite books on finance and the economy, including The Four Pillars of Investing, which just came out in a second edition about 20 years after the first edition. It's got all new updated information and data and new lessons based on all that we've learned during those intervening decades. So I am really excited for this conversation. Here we go. Bill, welcome back to the New Bazaar. Glad to be here. In your book, The Four Pillars of Investing, you write that investing is half math, which I think people understand why that's important, math, um, and half Shakespeare. What's that about, the Shakespeare part? By the Shakespeare, I mean the part that isn't math, that relates to the human condition. So I mean the fact that both economic history and financial history, as well as geopolitics, is a cruel, cruel mistress. So that's the first part of the Shakespeare. The second part of the Shakespeare is the enemy that stares back at us in the mirror, our own psychological foibles. And then the third thing is mass psychology, how individual psychology mixes up in crowds, the madness of crowds, to, uh, to to coin a phrase. And that's what I mean by, by the Shakespeare, those three things put together. And if you only pay attention to the math and you don't pay attention to the Shakespeare, soon enough you're going to come to grief. It's been two decades since the first edition. 
What's maybe the single biggest thing that you've actually changed your mind about since that first edition came out? Well, we all know about the magic of compound interest. And there is Charlie Munger's famous dictum, his prime directive of compounding, which is to never interrupt it. Now, you're most likely to interrupt it in the really bad states of the world, the 2% of the time when the excrement seems to hit the fan. And that's the single most important thing about investing is to never, ever interrupt your compounding. Let me let me actually make that just a little bit less uh, abstract, I guess. When you're talking about the 2% when the, as you said, the excrement hits the fan. This is a podcast. We can say the shit hits the fan, right? You're talking about those states of the world where everything's collapsing. The stock market is collapsing. And if you've got your money invested in the stock market, that will seem like a really panicky time, like a good time to sell, to interrupt your investment and get out of the stock market. You're saying that actually it's in those times when you really need to keep your cool. You've got to make sure that you're following a long-term strategy, which says, no, actually you increase your purchases of the stock market after it's collapsed, not getting out of it. But that's really hard psychologically. And if you look at the last two decades, well, we had first the financial crisis, of course, of 2008, 2009, when the stock market and other asset markets, financial markets really collapsed. And then we had the COVID crisis when it also just really collapsed. Those must have been really, really difficult times in which to stay the course. But you're saying staying the course, staying invested and being smart is not just the prudent thing, but the necessary thing to do if you're going to be an investor. Is that about right? Yeah, and I would expand on that. It's not just that the market is collapsing. Markets don't collapse without reason. The world in you know late 2008, early 2009 looked like it was coming to an end financially. The banks were failing left, right, and center. Uh, if you looked at March of 2020, there was a pandemic that was going to kill millions of people, and there was no vaccine in sight, and we didn't think we were ever going to get one. All you had to do was look at the history of the development of HIV vaccines. That took decades, and even that wasn't entirely, it hasn't been entirely successful. So the world looked really awful then. So it's not just that the markets are collapsing, it's the narratives that surround the market collapse that frighten people. So is that the way in which you've changed your mind the most then, that you would emphasize more the importance of staying the course? Yeah, I, I enjoy plumbing aviation for investment metaphors. You know, competent <laughs> pilots, conscientious pilots spend a lot of time examining accident reports. And that's why financial history is so important. Pilots also spend probably 80% of their training practicing for emergencies. Same basic idea. So if you're in the majority of people who are affected psychologically by falling markets, then you can do two things. Number one is you should spend at least a little bit of time to learn some financial history. Learn about 1929 to 1932. Learn what happened in the 1970s. Learn what happened in 2008. And tell yourself that you are going to see two or three episodes like that during your investment 
lifetimes. That's the first thing. And the second thing is to hold more safe assets than you think you need. You're going to hear people tell you stocks have the highest returns in the long run. It's suboptimal to carry too much cash. It is not suboptimal to carry too much cash because that cash is what is going to give you the elixir of equanimity you need to see yourself through the worst of times. Safe assets, to be clear, you're defining as either cash or things like government bonds, treasury bonds that are easy to sell for cash when you need to and which tend to preserve their value even in a downturn. Is that right? Anything with a government guarantee. Now, the real question is you just mentioned government bonds. Uh, Government bonds can be of rather long maturity. And three times out of four during a financial panic, they do very well. They really do save your bacon. But the problem is that about one time out of four, they behave the wrong way. And what happens is is that when bonds crash, stocks can crash. That's what happened in 2022. And it's also what happened during the 1970s when the stock markets reacted to rising interest rates and falling bonds. So I like, for that reason, to keep bond durations, government security durations, relatively short, certainly less than than five years, to avoid that one time out of four when you're really going to lose your cool, when the ground seems to be crumbling beneath your feet, and not only are stocks crumbling, but even long treasuries are crumbling too. Yeah. We should, by the way, tell people what the four pillars of investing actually are. You've mentioned, for example, uh, financial history a couple of times. That's one pillar. Another pillar is understanding investment theory. And your book goes into that. It, it has both the basics and it has you know, some math sections for the more advanced readers if they want. But you also make it clear where you can skip that. Um, but there's also, in addition to investment theory and financial history, there's understanding psychology. And there's also understanding the business of investing so that you mainly avoid getting ripped off. Those are the four pillars of investing. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself. There's something really interesting in the book about the nature of risk. And traditionally, a lot of people think of risk as volatility. So if you want to know if a certain stock is risky or a certain bond or some other financial product, the way it sometimes gets modeled by financial theorists and financial modelers is according to its volatility, how much it fluctuates up and down, basically. You say that actually that is a very limited way of understanding risk, that there is other dimensions to it. Like there's the severity of how much it goes down when it goes down. What about the timing when it goes down? So what would you add to the traditional understanding of risk that's really important for people to understand and that maybe is somewhat underappreciated? Well, I like to think about risk as being divided into two types. There is shallow risk, which is you know, 2008, October 19th, 1987, when the stock market lost almost a quarter of its value, but quickly recovers. So that's that's shallow risk. But that's really, if you're a long-term investor, not what real risk is. What real risk is, is not losing a little bit of your money or a lot of your money very briefly. It's finding yourself living under a freeway when you're 60 years old. So we're talking, you know, what produces that? Well, what will produce that is utter collapse of a stock or a bond market. Now, we've never seen an episode of deep risk in the U.S. equity markets, but we certainly saw it in the fixed income markets. During the 1970s, there were enormous losses that almost never recovered uh, in long-term bonds of all types. Between 1940 and 1980, 
the a dollar invested in the U.S. long bond lost about two-thirds of its purchasing power, even with reinvested interest. The Japanese stock market after 1990 is another example of that. That's deep risk. Now, shallow risk, again, there's this dimension of when it occurs. The reason why I don't like corporate bonds is when they lose money, they lose money at the worst possible time. Corporate bonds take it in the shorts during periods like 2008 or the Great Depression because they carry with them credit risk, the risk of the companies that issue them. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk more about corporate bonds in a minute. I want to stay on this concept of risk and especially the the severity and the sustainability of losses that someone might experience. Because I want to emphasize that even shallow risk, which you just defined as a big sudden collapse in an asset like in the stock market or in the bond market, if it just recovers soon, then in the long term, you're okay. But when it's happening, that can be really traumatizing to somebody who's investing. And in fact, Certainly for professional investors that I speak with, avoiding even that big collapse is a really big deal for them because they're in charge of managing not just their own money, but money on behalf of other people. And if they're invested during a period of even really steep declines, even if it's going to eventually come back, they've missed their chance to invest when asset values have suddenly become cheap. And for them, that's like their livelihood is getting in at the right time. It's a big part of it, at least. And so I'm, I'm really interested in this idea that for professional investors, that can be a really big deal, even if in the long run, if you're a long-term normal person investor, retail investor, whatever, it's maybe not as big a deal. Exactly. Uh, in fact, it's a, as you just pointed out, it's an enormous disadvantage for the professional investor. If you underperform the market for a period of three to five years, which all well-designed portfolios are going to do, that's a career-ending event. You've not just lost your investments, you've lost your career. On the other hand, if you've got a real job and your 401k has underperformed for three or five years, it's not a big deal. And so professional investors spend an awful lot of time thinking about tail events, black swans, if you will, because for them, that's a career-ending event. Well, guess what? If you're an individual investor, it's not a black swan. It's a white chipmunk. It's not a big deal. (laughs) In terms of deep risk, which is the long-term collapse of the values of something in your portfolio, you list four really big sources of deep risk. I just want to read them real quick. Uh, One is inflation. So if you live in a country that doesn't have good governance, good economic governance, and the central bank might just go nuts and inflate away the value of the currency, well, there goes the value of your investments too. So inflation is a big one in certain contexts. Confiscation, a country in which there's not much rule of law, that is a big deal if you know you make a lot of money in something, but the government might take it away from you. That's a big deal. Devastation, which I think has to do maybe in some cases with like natural events, um, if they just completely destroy a country's economy, if, if they're especially vulnerable to these kinds of events, that's obviously a massive source of loss. And deflation, uh, which is a more interesting concept here. Can you kind of describe what that one means? Because that was the one that surprised me of this list. Well, deflation is something which is almost uh, an archaic historical event. Deflation was a very common event before the invention or the wide, I should say, wide adoption of fiat currencies, of paper currencies. Uh, So you saw a lot of deflation 
in the hard money world. That's what's wrong with the gold standard is you've handled in a number of other, handled very well in a number of other podcasts, as well as the Planet Money crew has done uh, an excellent job as, with that as, as well. That's extremely rare in the modern world. Even, you know, when we think about deflation in the, in the fiat money era, you would think maybe about Japan. But even Japan actually hasn't had deflation. They've had a very slight amount of inflation, but uh, they've actually not experienced what any economist would call deflation. So it's extremely rare. And I mentioned it just for the sake of completeness. You just mentioned gold. And I want to just pull a brief quote from your book, which is about gold, which I loved. Here's what you write, quote, over the past two millennia, the yellow metal's real return seems to be zero. In ancient Rome, an ounce of it bought a fine toga, and today it buys a good quality men's suit, unquote. Uh, A-plus writing, Bill, just excellent finance writing, vivid example, easy to understand, and it also lets us dismiss with the idea of investing in gold right away, right? It's a bad idea. Nobody should ever do it. Is that about right? There's nothing wrong with holding a <laughs> tiny amount of gold in your portfolio if it lets you sleep at night, but I certainly wouldn't make it a, a major part of my portfolio. When it comes to investing in gold, I actually prefer the shares of gold mining stocks, which have even lower returns than gold does. But the, the, the advantage of gold mining stocks is, first of all, they produce a dividend. Secondly, and more importantly, they're far more volatile than gold. So you need to hold far less of it in your portfolio. And you actually can make a bit of excess return just by rebalancing it back to 1% or 2% of your portfolio. You do a lot of buying low, and you do a lot of selling high when you hold gold mining stocks, which you don't do quite so much with the yellow metal. This speaks to something else, though, which is that I think for most people, and this is in your book, they actually shouldn't try to pick individual stocks unless it's something that they're trying to have fun with. They should just invest in something that passively tracks stock indexes, and they shouldn't try to time the market. In other words, they shouldn't try to figure out when the market has finally hit a top and they're going to sell, or when it has finally bottomed out and they're going to buy that they should follow a kind of long-term investment strategy on when to buy and when to sell that's not based on, oh, I can predict exactly when the twists and turns in the markets are going to be. That's kind of long-standing, you know, basic financial soundness. Do you still agree with those basic ideas and why or why not in the light of what's happened in the last, say, couple of decades? No, that's that's those are both evergreen concepts. Uh, the reason why you don't try and time the market is that no one has ever successfully and consistently done it. There have been a couple of one-hit wonders, uh, people who've called crashes days in advance. But what you find is that when you follow their track records forward, they generally don't do very well at all all. So in the entire history of investing, I'm not aware of anyone who has consistently called market direction. When it comes to trading individual stocks, always remember that there's somebody else on the other side of your trade. When somebody is buying, when you are buying, somebody else is selling that stock to you and vice versa. And that person on the other side of your trade very likely has a name like Warren Buffett or Goldman Sachs. Uh, and that's not even the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is if you're trading with the CFO of the company whose shares you're dealing with, because that person knows more about that company than anybody else on the planet. 
And so it's kind of like you're playing tennis against an invisible partner. And what you don't realize is that the person on the other side of the net is Serena Williams. Yeah. What's interesting is that it's even hard for people who get paid to beat the market to beat the market. And if you look at the statistics on people who actively manage investment funds, most of them over a long enough time period also underperform what you would have gotten if you just tracked the market, if you just invested in a fund that passively tracks the market. And some of that, I think, has to do with just the cost of trading in and out of stocks. And some of it just has to do with the fact that it's really, really hard to pick a winning stock, given that there's so much information out there now, there's so much transparency. And so you've really got to just kind of guess right because there's nothing you know that other people don't know. Maybe you're smarter than everybody else, but over a long enough time horizon, it just becomes really, really hard. And even the professionals can barely beat the market. Yeah, there's a man named Peter Bernstein who, unfortunately, uh, I wasn't related to, very famous uh, finance (laughs) writer, uh, who wrote an article entitled, Where, Oh, Where Are the 400 Hitters of Yesteryear? Uh, And I guess since Ted Williams, there hasn't been a 400 hitter. And the reason is because the pitching has gotten so much better. The person on the other side of the trade, if you will, has improved their skills. So, uh, you know, the reason why professional investors don't beat the market is because they are the market. So even before expenses, they're matching the market. And once you consider all the layers of expenses that they wind up paying, of course, they're going to underperform the market on average. Now, you might say, well, I'm going to pick the person with skill who can persistently beat the market. And what you find is that there's almost no one who meets that description. For every Warren Buffett, for every Peter Lynch, for every Jim Simons, there are a hundred people who look like that, but then when you follow them forward, lag the market. Here's another big change from the last couple of decades, which is that it has become really, really, really easy and cheap for anybody to get into and out of the stock market, to buy and sell stocks, and to buy and sell other more kind of sophisticated things too, and not just bonds, but things like options and other derivatives, um, and even to buy and sell commodities, real estate. There's all these new products that are now really cheap and easy to use so that anybody can get into and out of all these different markets. And on the one hand, this sounds pretty good, right? Like, let's make finance more democratic. I don't want only rich people to have access to some investments that might be able to pay more than just investing in other things, at least as part of a diversified portfolio. On the other hand, there could be a lot of risks associated with these products that are really badly understood when you do democratize the markets in this way, financial markets. And so I guess I'm curious to know if you have any updated thoughts on these trends of making it much, much easier, much, much cheaper for more people to invest in a wider array of financial products. I don't worry about it in terms of risk. The markets have not gotten more volatile. After all, uh, over 30 years ago, 36 years ago, the market fell 25 or 23 percent 
in one day. If you look at what happened in 1929, the sort of volatility we saw in 1929, that has never been seen since. So the markets are certainly not becoming more volatile. Yes, you can buy and sell stocks uh, and mutual funds and ETFs with a couple of keystrokes, but all people had to do in 1929 was call their broker to cause a spectacular stock market crush. So we haven't seen an increase in volatility that would validate that concern. But what has happened, as you just pointed out, is it's become a lot easier for people to invest in the stock market with all of the new vehicles that are out there. Also, uh, what has happened is that a large number of people with the shift of retirement plans from defined benefit to defined contribution are a lot more people in the stock market. In the 1970s, only 15% of people invested in the stock market. And now it's closer to 60 or 65%. So that means that there's a lot more money chasing stocks, which means that prices have been bid up, which guess what? Means returns are going to be lower than they've been in the past. From 1926 until today, stocks returned about 7% per year after inflation. We're not going to see that again because there's just too much money chasing the shares of the companies. I want to now ask about the economy and economic indicators. I was looking at the yield curve the other day, the difference between uh, the 10-year yield and the three-month yield. And right now, the three-month yield is actually higher, which means that the short maturity part of the curve is yielding more. Traditionally, when that happens and when it sustains over the period of a few months, it signals that a recession will begin within roughly the next 12 to 18 months. And we're like eight months in right now. And so if you look back at this signal going all the way to the 1960s, it has always indicated that a recession was on its way. And there have been no false signals. Every inversion in the yield curve by this measure has led to a recession. And there have been no recessions without being preceded by an inversion in the yield curve. But of course, that streak might end. Streaks end. All right. But it does make me a little bit nervous. And I'm just kind of curious to know what you think about it. Well, you're absolutely right that yield curve inversions generally lead to recessions. The study I think you're referring to looked at the difference between the three-month and the 10-year. But that was done after the fact. And I have to wonder if there wasn't some data mining going on there. If you looked at a different metric, if you looked, for example, between the difference between the one month and the five year, it's not quite as predictive. Uh, and so I, I have to wonder if there wasn't some data mining going on there. Now, the study was done by Cam Harvey, you know, who's a Nobel Prize level financial economist, brilliant guy, and he certainly knows all about data mining. But there's something more important going on here, which is that that may be true, but it is also true that the world economy basically runs on the fractional reserve system. It's inherently unstable. It's an expansile and contractile monetary base, which produces booms and busts. So it's just mm -hmm. a part of a normal modern economy to have recessions and expansions. And eventually, you're going to see a recession. So the next question is, is that actionable from an investment point of view? And the answer is, of course not. Warren Buffett put it best. He said, you know, I know all of these economists who have IQs of 160. I've never met a rich one yet. 
all right? And he went on to point out that John Maynard Keynes, certainly one of the most brilliant financial economists who ever lived, tried to make money uh, on that sort of macro forecasting, and he had his head handed to him. And then he settled down and he realized, hey, maybe I'm better off doing bottom-up analysis and looking at individual securities. And then he did very well for the endowment that he managed uh, at Cambridge. And then, you know, I, I hate to keep quoting different money managers. Uh, I think Peter, no, please. I, I think it was Peter Lynch who said that that he spent 13 minutes a year uh, examining the economy, and that was 10 minutes that he'd wasted. <laughs> That's great. Bill, as we are recording this on Friday, July 14th, the U.S. stock market has returned like 17% this year, roughly. And that, of course, does follow last year's big collapse. And so actually the stock market, even though it's done great this year, is not yet back to its peak levels where it was at the end of 2021. But it has recovered this year. The dividend yield on the stock market, and I'm going by the S&P 500, which is a pretty widely used, imperfect, but pretty widely used proxy for the U.S. stock market. The dividend yield is about one and a half percent. So For our listeners who are not familiar with this concept, if you were to invest $100 into the U.S. stock market, at the end of a year, you will have gotten uh, about a buck and a half. Whereas if you were to invest that into treasuries of up to a year's maturity, you'd get five and a half bucks back, right? That's a lot more yield you would get from right now investing in government securities. And even for the 10-year treasury, the yield is something close to 4%. That's just one point of comparison. There's all kinds of other things you can use, but it suggests that relative to where the bond market is right now, the stock market might be somewhat overvalued. What do you think about that relationship and what it tells us about the stock market? Well, that's one of the problems with trying to use valuation metrics is when you plot, say, dividend yields versus forward returns, what you see is what looks like a fairly tight relationship. And it looks like it's a really good idea to buy stocks when the dividend yield is high uh, and to sell stocks when that's low. The problem is, is that that's has what's called a stationary problem, which is that the past relationships don't necessarily hold going forward. So the example I use in the book is that it was a pretty good rule before about 1950 or 1955 that when stock yields rose above 4%, you bought, and when they fell below 4%, you sold, okay? Well, the last time we saw stock yields of 4% were you know, almost half a century ago. So you would have sold out and never bought back into the market again, which would have been a huge mistake. So it's probably not a good idea to try and play that particular game. Now, what I look at are real yields. And the real yield, at least as we're speaking, of U.S. government bonds is measured by TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, is roughly 1.6% or so, 1.7%. And if you take that same dividend yield of stocks and you add 2% dividend growth to it, real dividend growth to it, you get a return, an expected return of maybe 4%. So there's what's called an equity risk premium of something like 2%. In other words, it's the extra return you get over, say, if government securities by investing in stocks. That's not awful. 
you know, if you go back and you look, for example, uh, in the year 2000, uh, the difference was actually negative. You could get uh, 3.5% on tips, and stocks were priced to yield about 3%, less than that, actually, uh, by the metric that, that we're just using right now. So it's probably not a good idea to try and play that game of buying and selling according to uh, stock valuations. Now, having said that, uh, you're talking about the broad U.S. market. Abroad, dividend yields are much higher. uh, And if you look at the valuation metrics in certain sectors of uh, the markets, small value stocks, uh, for example, uh, they look actually quite attractive. One of the points in the book, though, was that the correlation between U.S. stocks and stocks abroad uh, has been rising. In other words, that they tend to move in tandem, which would lower the benefits that you get of diversifying diversifying outside of the U.S. market, which brings with it some complications. Not too bad, but you know, it's just a little bit trickier to do that if you're an American investor than just investing in the U.S. stock market. Those correlations have been rising. And also, it's easy to understand why. In an era of globalization of the last few decades in particular, a lot of American companies that you can invest in do a lot of business abroad, either exporting or they have offices abroad where they sell things. And you make the point, though, that although those correlations are high and, yes, the benefits of diversification in the last few decades has fallen, it's still a good idea to diversify abroad. Why is that? Well, when you talk about the correlation, you're talking about the correlation of short period returns, so typically one month. And you know, I've already used the term risk aversion myopia, which is that we tend to focus on short-term risks. So sure, on a day when the U.S. market goes down 3 or 4%, foreign markets are probably going to go down even more. But when you look over much longer periods of time, the deep risk sorts of horizons, you find that diversification works very well. And my favorite example of that is the period between 1999 and 2008 inclusive. So that's a decade's worth of returns. And you see that U.S. stocks, large U.S. stocks, the S&P 500, had significant negative real returns over that period of time. Whereas foreign stocks, and particularly uh, small foreign stocks, and particularly value stocks in both of those domains, did very, very well. They saved your bacon. So even though the correlation by that point had risen to close to 1.0, almost perfectly correlated, the mean returns varied very dramatically and in your favor if you diversified abroad. So you're trying to avoid you know, the, the Japan 1990 problem, where you put all your eggs in one national basket, where you wind up with winding up getting slammed by deep risk. Yeah, one longer term question I also have is about whether or not more countries will successfully kind of fragment from others. In other words, whether there will actually be a kind of deglobalization. I'm somewhat skeptical about how far this will actually go, but certainly that is the mood in a lot of countries, including in the US right now. And if that leads to actual policies that actually do lead to more global fragmentation, I actually think that's going to be quite bad for most economies and for the global economy. But in terms of diversifying your risk across multiple you know, countries, diversifying abroad, it means that that becomes an even better idea than it used to because you won't have that tethering of countries that you had from globalization. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, you're talking about the, the shift from just in time to just in case. And 
that's a good argument that perhaps there'll be a fragmentation you'll see of uh, national markets. You'll see a decrease in correlation. But the problem is the way you're going to see that is with capital controls. You know, uh, that's a fraught subject, which is probably well beyond <laughs> what we're what we're going to be talking. What we're going to be talking. You know, the you know the tridilemma of monetary policy yeah. and all that sort of nonsense. But make, no, no. But making it just for listeners that basically making it harder to not just trade with other countries, but also to invest in the economies of other countries other than your own. That's what we basically mean by capital yeah. controls. So, so there'll be a theoretical advantage to investing in, you know, Argentinian or Chinese or Vietnamese stocks. But guess what? You won't be able to buy those stocks. Mm-hmm. It'll be harder. Yeah. Right. That's the point, I guess. Sure. Um, in terms of the stock market and what's happened in the last few decades, I just want to read another quote from your book because I think this gives a really good sense of how people tend to be prisoners of the moment and how dangerous that can be. So here's what you write, quote, while the 10 years between 1999 and 2008 saw the worst 10-year stock return in U.S. market history, the dramatic recovery, which saw prices increase sevenfold off the 2009 low by 2021, had also erased the memory of painful losses in the equity markets and of the 17-year history of negative inflation-adjusted stock returns nearly two generations ago, just in time for 2022's carnage in both stocks and bonds. What's interesting to me about all this is that obviously you had the 90s where stocks were going gangbusters, you had the IT revolution, et cetera, et cetera. And if you had just been thinking in those terms, you'd be like, wow, stocks are going to keep going up for a while. And yeah, there'll be a recession. Maybe they'll go down for a bit, whatever. But the idea that you would then have a decade of negative returns would be mind-boggling, or even a decade of small single-digit or zero returns was mind-boggling because the stock market was going up like 20, 30% a year, and yet, bang, that's what we got in the 2000s. But then, if you were too caught up in the fact that 2008, 2009 had this terrible collapse, you might have never gotten back into the market. Well, guess what? In the time through COVID, as you write, the stock market went up six or seven-fold. And then COVID happens, and then again, you might forget. I just the, the forgetfulness of people is so dangerous, both the good and the bad, that I think it's worth just pausing to kind of emphasize the importance in here. And that's why I think that passage was so interesting, especially because it came in the psychology part of the book and not in the stock market part of the book. Yeah, the there's a quote that's ascribed to Albert Einstein, it's apocryphal, of course, that that compounding uh, was the most powerful force in the universe. He didn't say that, but what he should have said is the most powerful force in the financial universe is amnesia. And that's where studying history is so important. And so you study all this history, and then you go and you read Kahneman and Tversky, the famous psychologists, and you read about the availability, heuristic, and, and recency. So the fact that we are evolutionarily designed to overweight what's happened to us most recently. You know, when do people buy earthquake insurance? After there's an earthquake. That's not logical. Yeah. Let me stay on that psychology point for a second. Um, Because the the fact that we have, as you described it, loss aversion is a big deal. The fact that we tend to overweight what just happened. These are both like pretty solid findings in behavioral finance, behavioral economics, and psychology. But there's a lot of behavioral findings that have come under a lot of scrutiny in the last few years. There's been a famous so-called replication crisis where a lot of the things that we thought were true about 
behavioral science turned out not to be true, or at least they couldn't be replicated in further studies and might not be true. What do you think should be kept from behavioral finance and behavioral economics? And what are you sort of moving past and thinking, okay, wait a minute, this might not actually be true, even though we once thought it was true? Well, neuropsychology and social psychology are sciences. So someone publishes a result and then other people try and replicate it. And part of the problem has been there hasn't been enough replication because if you have enough replication, then you see a lot of results do fall by the wayside. But I think that the most important pieces of neuropsychology for investing uh, have been pretty well confirmed. You know, Kahneman, Tversky's work, I'm not aware of anyone who's disconfirmed that for me, the most important social psychology experiment ever performed was the one that was done by Solomon Ash, the conformity experiment, which shows how people are affected by the opinions of everybody around them, even when they're obviously incorrect. That's been confirmed multiple times. And to me, that's probably the most important bit of psychology for any investor to understand is we are the ape that imitates other apes uh, or other other people. And if you understand that, a lot of what happens in the market makes a lot of sense and it also can save your bacon if you can have a working knowledge of it as well. That to me is, is very important work that has been confirmed multiple times. I want to now turn uh, to the bond market because as you noted earlier, you are absolutely scathing about the bond market, but for good reason. I want I want to read a quote, and specifically, we're talking about corporate bonds, the bonds issued by companies, not treasury securities, which you've already said are a good idea for everybody to have some of in their portfolios. Here's what you write about corporate bonds. Quote, the longest series of corporate bond returns show that averaged over all grades of corporate bonds, they yield about 1.6% more than treasuries of the same maturity, about half of which is lost to bankruptcy, thus offering about 0.8% of extra return. Is this 0.8% extra worth the risk? No, unquote. Doesn't get any more clear than that. You do not like corporate bonds to be in the portfolios of normal folks. Maybe if you're a, you know, if you're a professional investor or whatever, great, but not for others, it doesn't make sense. Uh, why so negative uh, beyond just those long-term returns, maybe on short time horizons, they make sense. Um, what, do you, what do you think? Lay out the case for us. Well, over a short enough time horizon, even buying lottery tickets makes sense. The, the, <laughs> the, the, the problem with, with corporates is that when you look at high-grade corporates and you look at their behavior, you get exactly the same performance by owning about long-term performance is owning 90% treasuries and 10% stocks. So there's a stock component. The problem is, is that in the worst states of the world, which remember are the most important states of the world for you to survive, for your, through which your portfolio should survive, that percent goes up to around 30%. So in 2008, corporates really took it in the shorts. So if you want to buy corporates, I don't have a strong objection to it, but realize that if you want to take that credit risk, you're much better off buying stocks. So there are times when you can do very well investing in corporates after they've fallen in price dramatically during a financial panic. But you'll make even more money by putting a little bit of that money into stocks instead of investing or putting it all in corporates. The fact that they haven't historically protected you very well in downturns is to me the most compelling argument against them, that like if they're going to collapse at the same time that stocks are going to collapse, then just own stocks because over time you'll just make more money anyways in stocks. 
And then if you have some part of your portfolio also in treasury bonds, treasury securities, well, those do tend to hold up in a downturn. And then it also gives you an easy way to sell something, to raise cash, to buy stocks when stocks do decline and they become cheap. But that seems to be like your your foundational portfolio for somebody who's a true novice is to like buy some stocks for the long term, have a good chunk of your money also, I don't know, 20, 30%, whatever, in really safe government-sponsored, government-supported securities. And then when the stock market does collapse on occasion, you know, sell some of those government-supported securities to raise cash, to buy more stocks. And that that is the fundamental approach that most people should take, or at least people who know absolutely nothing about finance and are coming to your book totally fresh. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's exactly correct. During a financial panic, the very definition of money changes. So 98% of the time, the debentures of Procter & Gamble are money. Okay, they're, they're, they're worth 100% cents on the dollar, except during a financial panic. And then they, depending upon their maturity, can fall 5 or 15 or 20 percent, depending upon how long their maturity is. Uh, and people get seduced by the higher yields. People get seduced by the high yields of uh, junk bonds, high yield bonds. But they've got an even bigger problem when it comes to their stock component. I uh, love the history part of your book. And... I love it when you bring up history in our chats. So let me ask about whether or not there's a specific moment in history that could help illuminate what's happening right now that you think is maybe underexplored or not talked about enough. Oh, the 1970s, the period from about 1973 until 1981, which was a much more slow motion version of of what we went through in 2022. It's the period that is the most relevant. But I like to have an even wider lens than that, which is when you look at the entirety of economic history, really for the past couple of centuries, the overwhelming event has been the outbreak of inflation everywhere. It is very rare for a nation not to have high levels of inflation. We've largely escaped that in the United States. But it's it's a very pervasive process that you see everywhere. And that's the one thing that investors should should worry about uh, is, is inflation. And as I talk about in the book, there are a number of ways that you can't necessarily prevent the damage from inflation, but you can certainly mitigate it. Let's say you were talking to somebody in their 20s or in their 30s and they've picked up your book and they're thinking about getting into investing. Are you optimistic? Are you hopeful that if they do the right thing, that they will be able to make a lot of money in the markets over the subsequent decades, that they'll be able to retire in really good financial shape? Uh, yeah. What, what's your sort of disposition towards the future there? And, and what would you tell them? Well, if you're going to ask me to give individual advice, it's it's pretty simple, which is if your employer offers a low-cost target date fund, by all means, contribute to it, especially up to the match. And don't look at your statements too often. Look at your statements maybe once a year, maybe once every six months, just to make sure that you know that you haven't been uh, uh, the victim of fraud. And otherwise, don't pay any attention to your amounts or your returns. The less attention you pay to your portfolio beyond checking for fraud, the better off you will be. Now, am I optimistic about the shift from defined benefit to defined contribution plans? No. 
I am not. Investing is a very difficult activity to to execute properly. It's more difficult than, you know, flying an airplane or doing surgery because I've seen surgeons and pilots who make a mash of investing. And the analogy I like to use is for the average person, it's kind of like getting on the airplane instead of turning right after you get off the jetway to go to your seat. The the flight attendant says, "No, no, you're you're going left. You're flying the plane to Chicago." Uh, because that's the degree of expertise you need to do it properly. And you can learn to do that, but it's going to take some effort and some discipline. And unfortunately, I think it's unreasonable to expect the the median employee to be able to execute that properly. Yeah. I might not agree that uh, investing is harder than surgery just because surgeons have made a hash of investing, because I'd love to see some professional investors try to do brain surgery, <laughs> but I take your point. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess in the sense of, you know, telling somebody who's really young that actually we've been through things kind of like this before, that actually the 1970s were terrible. And there were long periods, two decade long periods, where you got nothing out of equity returns and then things got better again, that that the economy and the world does tend to move in cycles. But at least right now, you know, we are just much, 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 much richer, all of us, than we would have been 100 years ago or 150 or 200 years ago, much less all the time uh, before that. And I'm just, I'm always in search of like what people think, like what should be somebody's disposition to the prospects of working hard, saving enough, making enough money for retirement, how doable it is. And I'm not talking about like super rich people or people who are, you know, going to be on Wall Street for the next 30 or 40 years or whatever. I just mean like normal people, you know, middle class folks. Um, I'm always looking for the right message. Uh, What would your message be? Uh, Save as much as you can, put it in the lowest cost vehicles you can find and don't stop doing it until you die. It's it's pretty much, (laughs) it's not rocket science. You know, contribute the maximum you can to your 401k plan, put it in low in, in low cost funds, don't chase performance, and you'll probably be fine. You, you make an interesting point, though, which is that we keep getting richer and richer as, as a society. And one of the things that I'm pretty convinced of is that the wealthier a society gets, the lower its security returns are because, after all, a wealthy society is a society with a lot of excess capital. When there's a lot of excess capital, there are, relatively speaking, fewer opportunities to chase. There's too much capital changing, chasing too few opportunities. So the good news is you live in a wealthy society with excellent transport and healthcare uh, and and opportunities, uh, and you don't have to worry about you know dying of typhoid, which even rich people died from you know 200, 200 years ago. Uh, and you can fly you know, across the ocean in a jumbo jet in reasonable comfort, which people certainly couldn't do 100 years ago either. But your equity returns are going to be a little lower than they've been in the past as well. Those, those are the two things I think that are joined at the hip. And in terms of the current narrative, it seems like um, crypto has kind of fallen out of fashion, right? It's obviously still there. It obviously still has its hardcore proponents. But it's not getting the kind of widespread attention that it was getting in, I don't know, 2020, 2021. Same thing with all those meme stocks 
that people like on Reddit were chasing and that then the financial sector also ended up chasing. Some of that talk has kind of faded away. Uh, in the last year or two, what do you think people are talking about? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? Uh, and what should we think about it? Because, of course, there can be positive narratives, not just negative ones. Um, what are the narratives out there and, and what do you think about them? Well, in terms of investing, obviously, it's AI. Uh, yeah. You know, everybody everybody thinks that they're going to make a lot of money investing in AI uh, the same way that, you know, they, they thought they were going to make a lot of money investing in dot-coms back in the late 90s. I don't see that quite as pervasive as the late 90s dot-com phenomena. Uh, and, of course, you know, at the institutional level, there's always, there's always some – craze that never pans out. I mean, 20 years ago, it was something called value at risk. Now everybody's talking about private equity. And there's a principle that that, that you might call the David Swenson banquet uh, table or buffet table principle, which is that David Swenson got to everything first. He got to private equity. He got to hedge funds. He got to liquid alts first. And David Swenson was kind of- Real quick, a little little bit of background on David Swenson. He formally ran- the Yale Endowment did an amazing job, got huge returns, mainly by emphasizing what you just referred to as alt alternative investments, things like private equity, hedge funds, at a time when not as many people were emphasizing them. The problem, as I think you're about to explain, is that he was first, so he made a ton of money on this, but then... Take take us from there. Yeah. What happened? Yeah, there? I should I should have introduced that, and then everybody decided to adopt the Yale model. So they they all bought all of those asset classes, and what they didn't realize is that David Swenson had gotten to the buffet table first and gotten all the prime rib and <laughs> and and lobster tails, and they were left with the tuna noodle casserole. And today's tuna noodle casserole in the institutional world is private equity. Uh, and, of course, people don't realize that that party is probably over and there's way too much capital chasing far too few opportunities. Has that messed with public markets like the stock market? Uh, the fact that we have seen this tremendous rise in private investments in the last couple of decades, not just, by the way, private equity, venture capital, there's you know very big private credit markets now, actually. Um, has that also affected how we should regard the stock market and uh, yeah, what do you think? I don't think so. In fact, I may I might even think that it's a positive because in, really in the, the pre private well think about it in the pre private equity era, you had a lot of very early stage companies that had you know no div- you know almost no revenue certainly no earnings they weren't going to have those for a long time that that got snapped up in IPOs and they didn't do very well well now the companies that are coming onto the IPO market are much more mature and they have earnings because they've been through the private equity process to begin with so you might argue that it's a positive uh, a positive thing that's actually the opposite of what i think a lot of people say which is that you know, the problem is that these companies, when they finally do go public, are so mature that the opportunity to capitalize on that early growth is lost to people who can only invest in the stock market and don't have access to private equity. You're saying the opposite, that it's a good thing that they're so mature. That's interesting, but it, it is very different from the typical complaint or the typical thing that people say when they're when they're worried about the rise of private markets. Yeah, it cuts down uh, my I would say that it cuts down on the on the availability of lottery tickets, which is what a lot of early stage companies are. Okay. All right. What else uh, haven't we talked about that you think is really important for investors to know? Do you want to trash the media? There's a there's a 
chapter in your book where you basically say that most finance media is worthless. And if you think that uh, if our listeners think you were scathing about corporate bonds, wait till you see Bill Bernstein on CNBC, you know, talking about CNBC. It's pretty it's pretty astounding. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, is I have an interview on CNBC coming up. It'll be, <laughs> it'll be it, it's with a friendly interviewer, but you never know. I may have I may have pushed his buttons uh, too too many, too many times. You think he read that chapter in the book? I think it's the last chapter or one of the last. Chapters. I know he did. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is why he wants me on the show. Uh, yeah, that's great. I, I, you know, I think we pretty much covered the ground. Um, you, you know, you did mention one negative, which is the less financial media you consume, the better off you're going to be. Certainly, stay away from social media. Stay away from TikTok. Stay away from you know, Facebook and for the most part, YouTube. Now, I will make an exception, which is that YouTube is extremely useful if you know exactly what you are looking for. So if you understand that you want to hear, listen to lectures by Paul Samuelson or Gene Fama or Bob Schiller, then YouTube is just a cornucopia. Okay, And if you're the kind of person who, you know, likes to jog or walk while you're listening to lectures, it's not terribly hard to rip the audio out of YouTube either and and listen to that. I'm sure I'm encouraging somebody to violate the DCMA with that. But there I said it. And (laughs) and so that would be the the main thing is the, the less you're listening to other people talk about investing, probably the better off you're going to be. And if you're going to listen to other people talk about investing, make sure that they're recognized academic authorities. They, they should be a professor somewhere uh, because if they're not, the chances are they work for an investment company and that may not be good. And if you're going to listen to other people talking about investing, uh, make sure it's William Bernstein on the New Bazaar. And, and yes, yes. And, and, <laughs> and in your podcast, as well as Planet Money as well, which is superb. Excellent. Uh, William Bernstein, author of The Four Pillars of Investing. It is now out in a second edition, Lessons for Building a Winning Portfolio. Bill, thanks so much for being here. Let's do this again sometime. And that's our show for today. You can find links to Bill's latest book, The Four Pillars of Investing, and to his other books in the show notes for this episode. New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer. And our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, please leave us a review or tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at And we'll see you next episode. <laughs>